people often look for ways to justify their actions. If you can't make it to work, you find an excuse. So at the end of the day, the blame never lies on you, but always on some other circumstance out of your control. Even if the excuse is unbelievable, we still try to use them. Here are some excuses from employees who just couldn't make it to work that day. I woke up in a good mood and didn't want to ruin it. I got stuck in the blood pressure machine at the grocery store and I couldn't get out. My uniform caught on fire when I tried drying it in the microwave. Or I can't make it to work because I put a casserole in the oven. I don't know how favorably these excuses were viewed, at, viewed as by their bosses, but they were actually used according to USA Today. Worse than making excuses for missing work are the excuses we make for not believing in Jesus. Some might say there's no scientific evidence for miracles, that science and faith are incompatible, and that the Bible is full of stories people made up about Jesus. If you were to claim any of these excuses as your own, you wouldn't be the first. Believe it or not, Jesus' disciples shared the same concerns. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31, as we see these excuses break down. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. And again, I'll invite you to stand out of respect for God's word if you're able. Reading in Jesus' name. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst, and said, Peace be with you. He then said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Father God, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us in your truth here this morning. Open up our hearts and our minds and our ears to receive the message that you have for us today. And Father, help us to see Jesus, your Son, our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The disciples here are gathered together Easter Sunday in the evening. Just one verse earlier, Mary Magdalene claimed to have seen Jesus, but for whatever reason, the disciples don't believe her. 
Maybe they pointed to Mary's past and wondered if they could believe a woman like her. After all, she wasn't the most reputable woman. But there were other women also testifying of these things. How do the disciples write these testimonies off? Well, maybe they told themselves, well, this is just the word of a woman. You know how emotional they can be. We can't take that at face value. Surely they're deceived or delirious. But the disciples wouldn't believe this testimony. They're hiding out together. They're hiding because they're afraid. They're afraid of the Jews. The Jews had just had Jesus killed. What would they do with his disciples? They were scared and they didn't know, so they hid behind shut and locked doors. Then the unexpected happens. Jesus appears out of nowhere and stands in their midst. The door's still locked. The door's still shut. He just appears. And before they have a chance to react, he speaks, Peace be with you. It was a common greeting at that time. But when these words come from the mouth of the risen Savior, they're not just a common greeting, but way more than just that. His words deliver what they say. He announces and gives them peace. A peace that passes understanding. The resurrected Savior is standing in their midst, speaking to them. He shows them his hands and his side. But this couldn't be Jesus. He was dead. They had seen his body dead laid in the tomb, and yet everything their eyes saw, everything their ears heard, confirmed for them this fact, that this was indeed Jesus. And they rejoiced. They didn't believe the testimony of the women, but when Jesus appeared to them in the flesh and spoke to them and created faith in their hearts, they believed. In verse 21, Jesus gives these disciples and all who were in the room a commission. He says this, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And Jesus sends them out, but he doesn't send them out empty-handed. He gives them the Holy Spirit and he speaks and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And the disciples do indeed receive the Holy Spirit. Not just a piece of him, not just a special blessing of the Holy Spirit, but they receive the Holy Spirit who cannot be divided. Just like the Father cannot be divided and the Son cannot be divided. It's an all or nothing reception. These believers receive the Holy Spirit. They are sent out. But sent out to do what? What work does Jesus have for them to do? Verse 23 explains it. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. This task isn't reserved just for the clergy. It's not reserved just for the disciples in the room that day, but for all believers. Luther writes about this verse. He says this, This power now is given to all Christians. But who is a Christian? He who believes has the Holy Spirit. That's what defines a Christian. He who believes has the Holy Spirit, and therefore every Christian has the power to retain or remit sins. Luther then gives this example. He says, it as when my neighbor comes to me and says, Friend, I am distressed in my conscience. Speak in absolution to me. Then I may freely do this. Preach the gospel to him and tell him how he is, how he is to appropriate the works of Christ and is firmly to believe Christ's righteousness is his and his sins are Christ's. This is the greatest service that I may render to my neighbor. 
the work that every believer is called to do. Summarizing Luther's words, it's the duty and the privilege of every individual Christian to proclaim what the crucified and risen Savior has accomplished. The forgiveness of sins. So that when you come to me or when you come to any believer and you confess your sins to them, they can point you back to the cross and say, Christ has forgiven you of your sins. You are forgiven. Christ has paid for your sin. It has been forgiven. Look to Jesus and be forgiven. These disciples are sent out to proclaim what Christ has accomplished. And looking ahead to verse 25, we see that's exactly what they are doing. They begin with Thomas, the disciple who wasn't there. Thomas has his own excuse why he can't believe in Jesus, though. Think about this for a moment. The absurdity of Thomas's unbelief. He hears numerous testimonies of these Marys who are at the tomb. And now his closest friends are coming to him, telling him this, that we have seen the Lord. Each one says the same thing. Their testimony is the same. Their testimony doesn't change. Jesus is alive. And the way the verse is written gives the idea that these disciples are continuing to work on Thomas, continuing to reason with him and testifying to him. Yet Thomas wouldn't believe. Thomas was off doing something else that night when the disciples were all gathered together Easter evening. We aren't told where he was or what he was doing, just that he wasn't there. So maybe he was bitter that he missed this event. And he was just trying to convince himself that he didn't miss out on the most amazing thing he could ever imagine. Why he doesn't believe the testimony of all the other disciples is ridiculous. The sum of his reasoning is he simply refused to believe. But before throwing Thomas under the bus, he's not so unique, is he? Looking back at the other disciples, every one of them would not believe the testimony of these women. Any other disciple or any other person would probably think the same thing that Thomas was thinking. Because it defies science. It defies reason. It just can't be true. He heard the words that they were saying, but he just couldn't and he wouldn't believe it. Unless, unless he sees and experiences it for himself. Unless he sees Christ's hands and puts his fingers in the holes and sticks his hand in Christ's side. You can see the belligerence of unbelief here in Thomas. He rejects the numerous eyewitness testimonies. Maybe Thomas is just trying to live his own truth not accepting someone else's experience or someone else's testimony, but needing to experience it for himself first. We hear the same excuses from people today, don't we? It's a very postmodern thing to say, and it goes right along with our culture. You have to experience Jesus first before you can believe, before you believe the objective word that he has indeed risen. And for eight days, his disciples reason with Thomas, not giving up. And after the eighth day, we see the disciples are again shut up behind locked doors. Thomas gets what it was that he demanded in order to believe. Jesus appears and again announces to him peace, and he shows him his hands and his side. He announces peace this time to a bullheaded doubter such as Thomas, someone who convinced himself, I will not believe. And Christ announces peace to an unbelieving Thomas, because Christ himself has accomplished peace for that unbelieving Thomas.
Christ has reconciled God to man. And this is the very peace that Christ announces and delivers to Thomas. As he commands Thomas to go ahead, feel the evidence. Stick your finger in my hand. Stick your hand in my side. And he exhorts Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believing. One commentary translates it this way. Stop wallowing in unbelief and have faith. Jesus comes and he has every reason to slap some sense into Thomas. To say, why wouldn't you believe? Here are the testimonies. Here's the evidence. Believe already. But instead, Jesus comes to him and he says, peace be with you. Go ahead. Touch the evidence for yourself. And Jesus brings Thomas peace. Thomas then confesses his belief in Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. Jesus had created faith in this obstinate disciple. This man who was so convinced and adamant that he would not believe unless he sees the evidence for himself. And he responds to Thomas, he says, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Meaning the same blessing comes to those who believe without having seen the crucified and risen Savior. The same blessing is available for you as you read about Christ in the words of Scripture and believe in Him. We are just as blessed as Thomas and the disciples as we believe in Christ. Outside of Christ's appearance to Paul, we don't read about any other appearances of Christ after His ascension. He doesn't need to. He's already shown Himself to numerous eyewitnesses. And if you accept the testimonies of Scripture that have been recorded, And if Scripture is indeed true, as we claim it to be and confess it to be, then His resurrection is an indisputable historical fact, and there are no more valid excuses not to believe. John closes out this chapter writing the purpose for his gospel. He comments on the many signs that Jesus performed in the presence of His disciples. He doesn't call them miracles, though. It's more than that even though they are, in fact, miracles. But they're more than miracles. They're signs. Signs point us to something. They're pointing people to see that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God, the Christ. And each one of the signs included here in the Gospel of John is so that you would know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Each one of the signs that John records for us is meant to produce faith and life in you. It's to reveal to us who Jesus truly is. John records the frightened disciples here in this passage so all his readers can see what Jesus did to create faith in them. They were doubting and disbelieving. They didn't believe the testimony of the women from the tomb. They were frightened and scared, locked away from the outside world, and Jesus appears to them in the flesh and announces peace to them, the peace that he had accomplished for them on the cross. He created faith. He gave them the Holy Spirit, and he commissioned them to be his witnesses, to announce the forgiveness of sins that Christ accomplished on the cross, even for their sin of unbelief, and to announce the peace of Christ to a peaceless world. John records the stubborn unbelief of Thomas, who refused to believe the testimony of his closest friends, 
Though this peace was available to him, he instead decides to live in the deception of doubt, to refuse to believe unless, unless he touches Christ for himself. And then he would believe in Christ. Jesus appears to Thomas and demands that he do just that. And Thomas, stubborn, belligerent, bullheaded Thomas of all people, comes to believe that Jesus was both his Lord and his God. Thomas, too, found that Christ had accomplished peace for him, despite his unbelief. If there was ever anyone apprehensive to believing that Christ rose again from the dead, it was Thomas. And yet Thomas, too, faces the facts and believes. The disciples live the rest of their lives proclaiming this peace. And as the Savior extended his hands to the cowering and unbelieving disciples, he shows his nail-pierced hands to you in the words of Scripture. And the scars that are still there reveal the price that Jesus paid to forgive you and to accomplish the peace that he now brings to you. Lenski writes that they are the proof, the very proof that God is at peace with us. That these wounds are the seals which attest to the objective peace. Peter writes that by his wounds you are healed. So here, look in scripture and see the wounds of Christ for you and be healed. They are the hands of the one who has taken all your sin and all your guilt away. Meaning it doesn't matter how you feel about it. It doesn't matter what you think about it. Look at Christ's nail-pierced hands and know and trust and believe that you are forgiven. John writes that these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ so that believing you may have life in his name. And this life, this eternal life, isn't waiting for you to receive it on the other side of the grave. This eternal life comes to you presently, currently, now, in Christ. And as you believe in Jesus, this eternal life is yours, so that he who believes in him, though he dies, may live and never die. It doesn't always look pretty and glamorous, doesn't mean you're living your best life now either, but this life that Christ gives you is full of peace, knowing that he has accomplished peace with God for you. And that same peace that Christ announced to his disciples through the pages of scripture and through his nail-pierced body, he announces to you that the crucified and risen Savior has come to bring you peace, and he has accomplished it. That means you no longer have to justify your actions. No longer do you have to come up with excuses. You don't have to explain away your sin. You don't have to portray yourself better than you are. You don't have to live a life that you cannot live. You don't even have to come up with excuses as to why you gave in to sin this time or that time or any other time. Christ has reconciled the world to himself and he has reconciled you to himself, your sin and all. He has come to bring you peace. Will you accept the eyewitness accounts in Scripture? Will you listen to the words of these women? Will you believe the disciples' declaration? Will you accept Thomas's testimony that Christ has risen and he has come to bring you life? There's no longer any more need to justify yourself, for Christ has 
justified you. There's no need for excuses. So do not be unbelieving, but believing. And believing in his name, have life and peace in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you for these doubting disciples who wouldn't believe and for your grace in giving them the evidence needed to believe. Lord, for recording these in the pages of your inerrant and inspired truth for us that we would see the evidence has been made known that you indeed have risen again from the dead and that you have come to announce peace to us and to all mankind through your death and resurrection. Thank you, Jesus, for accomplishing peace for us. Help us to live in this peace, this peace that is found in your death and resurrection, this peace that you have accomplished, satisfying the wrath of God on our behalf. Help us, Lord, to give this message to those who are living in this peaceless world, that they too might have peace and life in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.